Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our special guest is April Wolf. She's the co-writer of the 2019 film Black Christmas and the host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. She's also a film critic with her work appearing on Phil Comment, The Criterion Collection, LA Weekly, and more. Welcome to the show, April. Hi, guys. Thanks for having Yay. me. Hi. Thanks for coming. So one of the things we like to always start off with is how did you get into horror? Oh, my grand. <laughs> <laughs> my grandparents my grandpa specifically. oh really yeah they're they're horror heads uh my, <laughs> that's amazing yeah my grandpa is kind of a gore hound so they raised me and um raised me right i guess uh yeah. <laughs> we, we just we watched um horror vhs's you know religiously every night and I'm, when i say every night i mean literally every night our oh wow we would go oh my to God. we'd go to the rite aid by our house after we ran errands for the bar and then we would always get two to three vhs's and sometimes we'd go through two um more often at least just one a night and so often there were there were repeats obviously and um because uh, the Rite Aid didn't really have the biggest selection um but I didn't uh, even know Rite Aid had movies that you could get <laughs> well you know like back in the day in the 1980s it was kind of a free-for-all because there was you know kind of a burgeoning blockbuster of course but there was also just mm -hmm. this huge demand for home video that um hadn't existed before and mm -hmm. so all of these places were getting into the game even though most of them couldn't keep up with the larger um stores but that was a, an interesting thing where grocery stores and convenience stores and um you know uh, pharmacies also carried a really large selection of uh, vhs rentals 
I remember that about grocery stores. Um, I remember walking in grocery stores and like they would always have um, in the front section, there'd be like a place to rent them. Um, Mm -hmm. That was like a big thing uh, in our in our neighborhood. I lived in Alaska, so we didn't really have a whole lot of uh, um, video stores. And that was like where we would get most of them. Yeah, that's cool. And like, what was your favorite movie that you guys watched together? I was really into Critters, I remember. Oh, okay, Critters. cool. And I was really into, um, God, which one was it? I'm trying to figure out which Nightmare on Elm Street it was. I think it might have been three. Yeah. The Dream Warriors? It must have been Dream Warriors. I'm trying to think of, like, yeah, the imagery from that, specifically the Dream Warriors um, uh, uh, installment of that franchise really, really stuck with me. Um and uh, so I don't know if it was necessarily my favorite, but it was like yeah. something where I was just like, whoa, this is very much um, in my psyche now. Uh, same thing with Sleepaway Camp. That was like, oh, yeah. Um, watching that when I was so young and, and um, you know, I, I have an appreciation for it. Obviously, I think it's kind of a, a complex film dealing with, you know, trans identity now. Yes. Seeing it yeah. through that lens, it's just, I, I think it's clearly much more complex than my brain was <laughs> able to understand or that the movie was able to understand so. right. <laughs> but yeah those were those are ones that stuck with me and then i love the kind of horror comedies that i watched um there's uh the gilda radner dom Deloise, and uh jean um uh i'm sorry jean what's his name Wilder? Wilder? Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, the Haunted Honeymoon was a favorite I one. loved Haunted Honeymoon. Yeah. I loved that growing up. Yeah, I loved it because I, I love that kind of old-timey radio show horror aesthetic that they were playing on. And, and I just like Dom DeLuise cross-dressing, I guess, too. Oh, just, I love him. That's <sighs> so funny. I, we, talk, we talked about The Secret of Nim last week, and I talked about how much I love Dom DeLuise's voice. Yeah. So amazing he's, he's so amazing good. yeah <laughs> but he actually plays a very respectful woman you know like he's like he takes the part very seriously in the same way that i think that huh. you know um like you get uh, uh with that show buckets and um and uh louis anderson oh louis anderson yeah yeah like he actually approaches like the female character was just like oh well, like yeah it's just a woman that i'm playing you know it's very i like it <laughs> i forgot that he played a woman in that i need to I, it's been so long since i've watched that i must have been like eight or nine when i saw it i don't think i've seen it since i was a kid oh my god i don't know if it holds up in some respects but there are some <laughs> kind of vaudevillian routines in it that i still just i I can't get it off of them. I think it's a great um, double feature with Clue. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet so. I love Clue. Mm. So you have a podcast, Witchblade Sisters. What um, Can you um, tell our listeners what it's about? Yeah. Uh, I uh, Weekly, um, I invite a new female filmmaker on, uh, and uh, we talk about their favorite genre film. And we dissect it from the point of view of uh, craft and aesthetic. So a little bit less of like, oh, here's a thing that I like. And more a little bit about how it was made, comparing it to and contrasting it to how the uh, guest makes their films and, and how it may be affected how they make their films. So cool. What a cool fucking idea. Thanks. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's just, uh, anyway, sorry. What were you going to say, Terry? I got <laughs> no, excited. No, it, it, it really was. I actually, um, this just this week, listened to uh, the your one on um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Megan. Oh, yeah. And Amram. And I loved, I loved that one. That's, 
it's I yeah I, I I love your podcast. I listen to it every week. Oh, cool! Thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I think that one with Megan is Megan Amram is probably one of my favorites too, and it's kind of cool to have um, just this new side to these people that you didn't know existed maybe the fact that like megan amram writes for you know the good place and parks good and Rec, these yeah. like sunny joyous things and her favorite movie is the texas chainsaw massacre it's like amazing yeah, this is what we want to know, <laughs> I know we it was, contain it was so multitudes <laughs> <laughs> so april so you used to be you are you are a film critic um read a lot about film so what was it like moving from like film criticism to screenwriting Oh, I mean, it's weird because when I moved into film criticism, no one told, asked me the other way around. And uh, that's because I was a failed screenwriter for a long time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I was a screenwriter first and um, just kind of used that to segue into. Just, oh, cool. And to writing about film just because I, uh, I just like dissecting things and I like celebrating the things that I love. Um, yeah. So, because uh, when I got hired to be a film critic, I, I wasn't really a critic before. I just sometimes wrote about things that I loved, and um, then they they kind of taught me how to do it. But they 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 brought me in as a film critic specifically because I came from the production side of things. So they were hoping mm. that maybe I would have a different um, outlook on um, on writing about movies and critiquing them, just knowing how they're made and having made some. So. Uh, that's cool yeah so going back into screenwriting i guess i never really left it's just that i've been you know like you guys when you have um you know projects that you're working on really quietly i'm not one of those people who does the kind of like hashtag am writing Uh, Uh, okay yeah (laughs) you know i don't i don't um perhaps i should have been sharing it more but uh i didn't really share it publicly with the things that i was working on because i was always publishing fiction i was publishing a lot of personal essays and some poetry Mm. and things throughout and uh and i just never really shared it as much i guess but but you know that's it's everyone has their own process and mine is actually yeah. fairly quiet so <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of nice though i feel like so many people like we feel like we have to push our stuff so loudly it is kind of nice to like take a step back and maybe i don't know be quiet i don't know how to put it like be quiet not be quiet but like i guess i feel like there is so much pressure to like publish 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 and like promote 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 so it does sound nice to kind of have that pressure off of your shoulders a little bit. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's nonstop. I feel bad for anyone who's a little bit younger in the industry too, who kind of feels that pressure because It's me. I'm younger <laughs> in the industry and I feel that pressure constantly. I didn't, I didn't want to say it is you, but I was just like, I'm being No, coy, no it's but... me. It's me. <laughs> it is me. I one hundred percent is me. <laughs> no, I, I think it's like it's a it's a valid fear that if you don't tell people what you're doing, then they won't know and you won't get jobs. You won't get the opportunities. And because you see the people who are talking about themselves the loudest often get those opportunities. And um, it's not always innate for people to do that. And so I I empathize with it a great deal. I've had to train myself over the the years, though, to talk about that. It's just that some things I still keep kind of private. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm new to writing about horror, but I'm also, um, I'm, I'm 39, but like, I, I still, it's, it, you get to the point of like almost burnout where you feel like you have to constantly be talking about what you're writing and constantly publishing and constantly just, oh gosh, I got to get more hits on my site, more hits on my site so I can get more work. Like it's, it's just, 
it sucks. <laughs> yeah, I I don't envy that. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've actually heard people who have said that they um, were turned down for raises or promotions um, at certain outlets because they didn't um, have the something, quote unquote, something extra, meaning the um, giant social media following. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> no. No. Oh my god! Ugh. I'm sorry. I don't mean to depress you and your listeners. No, oh no, that's not. <laughs> that's just more like frustrating to me that like clout is what gets you jobs, and that's always so frustrating. Like I have applied for things before where they have asked how many <laughs> Twitter followers I had, and mm-hmm. I was like, why the fuck does that even matter? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. and it's almost like. I have to remember this a lot. Like the number of Twitter followers I have does not have anything to do with the quality of my work. No. And it's just like, it sucks that like, especially for me, like coming up as like a young writer in this Twitter economy, not economy, but like Twitter, like environment. It's just like, it's, it's exhausting. And it's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I need my tweets to go viral to get attention. But it's like, but I don't also like, I would like to not be perceived. (laughs) Like I would like to not like make tweets and make people look at my profile. Like sometimes it's kind of nice to just be like, I will just go a little bit under the radar Mm. and not like, I don't know. It's like a weird balance that I think about way too often. And I wish I didn't. I apologize. <laughs> no, don't apologize. It's important to talk about because I feel like so many yeah. writers deal with that now. And like, it's important to discuss and that like, hey, guys, maybe like being less online isn't going to affect how good of a writer you are. Well, it's it's almost like what's that old adage that just like work smarter, not harder. So it's like maybe like yeah. tweet smarter, not harder. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Something that I have to remind myself a lot. Yeah, same. It's true. <laughs> uh last year you had uh the black uh black christmas remake come out um how did that how did that remake come to be mm, that is a complicated question oh <laughs> like i mean like anything today there's ip and that exists and mm-hmm. an executive will get the idea to you know get a hold of the ip and find a way to reboot or remake or sequelize it um and uh this is one of those cases where I think Blumhouse looked at the calendar and they were talking to Universal and they were like, okay, Friday the 13th is in December. So we would love to have some kind of like counter programming essentially. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so then Black Christmas became the kind of sought after property for that. Um, so uh, Blumhouse had acquired the rights to it and asked uh, Sophia to call if she would write and direct it. Um, and then they told her the timeline and she said, that's insane. And <laughs> Um, so she wanted to have uh, a writer with her to, you know, handle a good bulk of things while she's busy directing. And, um, so she asked me to co-write with her and it all went off from there. Cool. (laughs) Casual, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed like it kind of came out of, out of nowhere and it sounds like everything just kind of came together really quickly. Is that, is that what happened? Yeah, it was really, really quickly. I mean, Sophia and I didn't really even know each other that well. She had come on to Switchblade Sisters for an episode a year earlier, and then we reconnected um, last December. Um, so that would be, what, December 2018? And mm-hmm. 
because uh, she had a movie called um, New Year, New You come out on uh, Blumhouse's Into the Dark oh, yeah. on Hulu. And then I was like, oh, that's right. I really love your work. And I was going to completely give up screenwriting at that time. Um, oh. I was like, okay, well, I guess this is really not going to work for me. And I've tried and I've given it my best effort. Um, but maybe I should just focus on these things. And then I did a last ditch thing where I sent Sophia a script and she said, oh, I really like this and I would like to make it. But Blumhouse has been doing this. And so that's how she got to know me is very quickly through that. And so all of a sudden we had a month to write a screenplay and then we were in New Zealand. Oh, so, yeah. shit. Holy oh, shit. Came together very quickly. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I absolutely adore the movie. So it 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 worked <laughs> as quickly. Nice. It came... I mean, I absolutely am like obsessed with the movie. So, <laughs> I mean, like I... not to be that like fangirly <laughs> annoying, but like I am obsessed with it because I have a lot. I do a lot of work with like rape revenge movies and women directed rape revenge movies, and like this was just like exactly what I am looking for at all times. So I was just <laughs> like sitting in the theater by myself, just like yelling and getting excited because it was like twelve p.m. was the only one in the theater, and mm-hmm. I was just like, this is the perfect movie (laughs) so it's a weird thing to make a movie knowing how niche it's going to be and that it's going to be released wide because yeah um, and sometimes it felt like we were tricking them into making this movie because (laughs) i'm serious because uh, both sophia and i as it turns out we we found that we both write very quickly um Mm. so that means they would send us notes and we would already have three different drafts back to holy shit oh wow Um, and so they they often couldn't keep up with our output. And, oh my um, god! And if you, it turns out, if you overwhelm people, they're like, "Okay, fine." I. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great process. <laughs> so yeah, that was fun. I mean, we didn't even. We were so like in the moment that Sophia was on the plane to New Zealand to take off for like three months to to do Tech Scout, and we didn't even have the green light yet. Um, oh wow! She got the green light while she was on the plane waiting to take off. And, oh shit! Like it—it it was just a really weird process. <laughs> wow, that's absolutely wild. How quickly that came together, for, especially for a movie that was released wide and like got, you know, such a wide release. That's yeah. wild. Yeah, I don't think Universal wanted to release it. I'll be honest, <laughs> because it, I mean, like you've seen it. It's a niche movie, and I think it's going to find its audience outside of the theaters and. Um, away from the marketing, it's it's a thing where I don't think that studio or any studio really knew how to market that movie. Yes, ah, uh, so yeah. There was, you know, and inherently there are a lot of men at the top who were marketing it, and none of them mm-hmm. understood it and didn't know that we were doing something stylistically and tonalist and tonally weird. And it was it was a hard thing to get over the threshold. So the fact that we got the box office that we did for us is a very big victory because we ended up making money and hell yeah fuck yeah yeah that's, so, that's amazing yeah and um hopefully you know maybe some people someday will get to use our uh movie as a comp once it comes out on streaming and more people get to see it and <laughs> maybe like it we'll see 
Well, and like, hopefully, I mean, I know you said that it's like, it was like a lot of men at the top, but like, hopefully maybe this is like a good example of like, hey, these kinds of movies actually do, like can perform really well. And like, it's worth taking a chance on something that is perhaps different than what you usually release. At least that's my, like, maybe perhaps a little bit too idealistic hope, but like, I mean, if we, if we had done better, I think it would have done that. Um, Yeah. But the thing is that the narrative around the movie was already um, talking about how it was doomed before it began. Oh, so, it was so toxic, the ugh, discussion yeah. about so this movie. Even though we weren't a flop, we were p- painted as a flop. So right. I know. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It's such oh a bummer. God. And it's one of, it's just something where if you look at, you know, some of their other films that, that are kind of comparable to our budget and what we were doing, it's like we actually did quite well. Um, right. But uh, we're not really going to get that credit. And it's weird because it's not like anyone was like um, pissing and moaning necessarily about Fantasy Island being remade. Uh (laughs) I just don't understand it. Mm, (laughs) I know. Interesting. (laughs) Very interesting. (laughs) So weird. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the thing. um, I mean, Mary Beth and I talked a little bit about this um, back in in December. But the thing that, that like... I thought was amazing is um, I also saw this um, in a theater at like noon and it wasn't a packed theater, but there were a lot of young um, women and teenagers at the movie. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that there was a lot of clapping. There was a lot of cheering, especially in the, in the dance in the beginning of the film Mm -hmm. when they, when the, they kind of tell off the, uh, the frat with the dance, there was like so much of like, understanding and so much validation coming from the audience with that. And I thought this is the audience that needs to see it. This is why that movie exists. And it's why this movie needs to exist because if a young, if a young teenager understands what is going on in this film and can relate to it, then there is issues. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, hopefully people can see that later on again it's just i wish that we had done better and i just feel like sometimes we were set up for failure um well i i I also kind of think you were too because i i remember when this first was announced people like oh they're remaking black christmas and then it was like then then more stuff could come out about it and there would be more backlash and then it was the pg-13 back it's just it felt like every single time some news came out it was being painted as this negative thing and it bothered the fuck out of me yeah. perfectly honest yeah it was so it, i can only imagine it kind of felt like from all sides that we couldn't do anything right and that there was right. no place to position a movie like this so it like if you guys were privy to the um the conversations that we had about the rating throughout the entire yeah. process of making this movie you guys would just like tear out your hair that's why when people when people ask me about it i'm like i can't really sum up how that decision was made like in some ways it was made from the very beginning to make it pg-13 and Mm -hmm. we we pushed boundaries knowing that we would have to pull back and then other ways we you know because making something pg-13 or r doesn't have to do with violence all the time a lot of the Mm -hmm. time it's like you know like we were worried for instance when we were starting to write it as a pg-13 that we would have to make it R simply because of the um, content about rape, not even showing rape, but because they're talking frankly about it. Yeah. And um, that was a a huge thing. Like when we were started writing this, we were given a list of words that had been, that's been passed around studios 
for a long time, and it's a little bit outdated. I think the last current version that people have is from 2008. But there's a list of words that you can't really use as a as a rule generally to get a PG-13 rating, and one of them is rape. <gasps> what and, the fuck? And so if you can't That's... talk about rape and you can't say the word rape, then you can't have a movie like the movie that we made. So, um, we, that's the thing, like when I was just like, yeah, we always intended it to be, um, R then I was like, well, that's why, <laughs> because, right. we, yeah. you know, it wasn't always necessarily because of like gore and violence. It was because of Frank adult talk. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad that I guess they decided that rape was no longer a bad word. <laughs> like, Oh my God, you guys would, if you had any idea, like the back and forth, like it's such a negotiation to get a rating. So yeah, for, I, there's, I've seen a couple, like I've seen a really cool documentary about it and also just have seen things on Twitter and from like filmmakers that are like, it's so arbitrary. Yeah. Like it's dumb. Like you never really know exactly like what's going to get you. I know. I know. Pinged. But I mean, I don't know. I feel like you guys negotiated that PG-13 rating um, like really well. And I think I've read interviews with you about this. Like it's important that people like can see this that are under the age of 18 mm -hmm. i think it's amazing that like young girls can go to the movies with their friends like at the mall like this is the kind of movie i would have gone and seen as a kid at the mall with my friends and yes. i would have loved it like that's exactly and that's the kind of movie that they should be watching like if you're gonna watch a horror movie like why not watch something like this that really understands young women the way they talk the way they interact and like perhaps give them like a tool to understand like what could like they're like how to put words to like the interactions they have with men on a daily basis. Yeah, But you guys, no one, no studio anywhere has figured out how to reach and target young women. None of them. <laughs> like what? They have no idea. Like that's, it's just like not oh. on their radar. So they don't like one of the things, like if you guys heard like the marketing stuff that they, they threw at us, it would just be like, why? Um, just like not understanding a younger audience or, like where they hang out, what they're interested in. It's just like a total um, kind of uh, blindness that these um, that these men have for what a, a girl or what a young woman might be into or where they would go. Huh. Hmm. It's frustrating. Frust you but see, they know how. But they know how to market to young men. Yeah, I mean, like, there's they spend years of their lives figuring out how to market to young men. <laughs> that's just. No, I mean, that's the thing is like that's that's it's the truth um yeah, yeah no exactly and that's like so frustrating because like i don't know i feel like there's so many movies out there that are like technically targeted to young women but they don't know how to market that like i don't know that is so utterly confusing and a blind spot and gross like <laughs> or just women in general i mean look at birds of prey yeah. when i talk to kathy oh, Ann, yeah. i'm just like i'm looking at her marketing and i'm like okay i i actually like the posters i like a lot of that stuff i think that some of the things they were doing were, were awesome, but also like, you know, w women aren't a monolith. And so how do you reach a certain kind of woman and tell them to go and see this movie? You don't know, you know like, especially right. if they're not into comic books usually. And that's the thing that, you know, with black Christmas, it's like, okay, so I designed it for something of like, well, maybe a woman who's not usually into horror and maybe she'll find something here for them, you know? So it's just hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, Regardless, I'm glad the movie got made and that it did relatively well. And hopefully it'll keep getting more, especially when it comes out on streaming and Blu-ray. 
hopefully, fingers crossed, I want a Blu-ray. <laughs> like, it'll keep getting more attention because, I mean, I know you guys have have gotten a lot of haters, but, like, what about supporters? Like, what has it been like hearing from those who love the movie? Like, from young women or from people who maybe had a similar experience to Riley? Like, what has that been like to hear from people who loved it? I mean, that part is surreal, I think. Um, for, for me, I did go through an assault when I was in college and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you put a little bit of yourself on the screen. Um, yeah. but at the same time, it's still kind of like a movie version, right? There's like yeah. kind of cheese and dramatic things to it, obviously. But, um, <laughs> so when you have these young women who are like just DMing you with their very, very long stories, about what happened to them and how it taps into it. You're like, oh, okay, thank God. At least we made the movie for someone, you know? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, and I had my, I actually had my own experience with an assault in college with a part, like, with a romantic partner. And watching this movie was just, like, a catharsis, like, the biggest catharsis because he was a frat, bro- frat bro and, like, very similar conversations were had, like, in my experience. And it was just, like, the most cathartic thing to see it on screen like that and, like, it was. It meant a lot. Uh, well, that is really good to hear. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> of course. And um, yeah, I just, I really hope that people feel um, like brave enough to continue doing it. Brave is the wrong word because it's all just like a capitalist whatever bullshit thing. It's like whoever tells you <laughs> you can do it. But I mean, you know. One, thank you for putting a little bit of yourself into the movie. I know it's hard to kind of confront that in writing but it's awesome oh my so god thank you thanks yeah <laughs> um anyway wow <laughs> okay so do we want to talk about what we've been watching terry yeah okay terry what have you been watching so i'm still going through um like uh movies that i caught at panic fest mm-hmm. and the one that i wanted to talk about today I'm stalling as I pull it up is um, a movie called Two Heads Creek. Mm. Mm. It's an Australian film. Okay. Um, about and, and it, it takes place. Well, it starts off in a post Brexit uh, Britain. Oh, interesting. Where a Polish uh, couple of t- pair of twins are dealing with the death of their their mother who died from old age. And they're like being told to like get out of 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 britain and there's like so much there's a lot of anti-immigration stuff going on and they discover that their mom wasn't really their mom and their birth mother is from australia from this small town called two heads creek and so they decide to go to this town to um figure out who their real mother was it is about it is about immigration even in when when they go to uh to australia there's like they get on this bus to go to this town and the bus is full of a lot of asian um people that are coming in to to work a lot of asian immigrants they're the only white people on the bus and there's like they're 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 sitting in there and they're like trying to figure out what is going on and the whole movie is basically a big a big f you to the (laughs) the white patriarchy Mm. in australia Mm -hmm. and it's really funny it's really funny and it has that kind of gonzo gore to it that kind of reminded me of like early peter jackson oh, or like cool. um kind of like evil dead 2 kind of like the splatter i kind of call it like splat stick humor because it, it's very <laughs> much like <laughs> very good because <laughs> it, it's 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 like used the gore is used to like make you you know chuckle and whatnot but it's it was really good and it had just enough of like 
a political edge to make it interesting past the comedy. Like it was definitely just surface level type humor when it came to the the politics, but it definitely was there and it added a lot. And I really hope, um, I hope it gets distribution. I'm not sure if it has distribution yet, but it was, I really, it was the first movie we saw at Panic Fest and it was probably one of my, my favorite experiences in the theater of the movies that I hadn't already seen. Um, Cool. That's awesome. I hadn't heard of it. And I, Australia, I like Australian horror is like quickly becoming one of my favorite, like, like nationalities of horror. Cause I feel like they make some wild, wild things. There's been a lot of good stuff coming out of there recently. Really good. Like Hounds of Love, The Loved Ones, The Furies. Um, the Furies. There's just like some really amazing Australian horror films out there. Yeah. And then the other movie is not horror, but it's something that I really, 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 really enjoyed. And it's called, um, and then we danced. Oh, I've heard such good things about that movie. I really want to see it. Yeah. It's, it's, um, is a coming of age and a coming out story of a uh, a dancer um in the in the city of T- Tbilisi I, I think it's I think it's I think that's how you pronounce it I'm not really sure but it's in this place dance is like a a national um identity for them mm-hmm. and it's very like what we would consider stereotypically masculine and he's a very free form dancer and so there's like there's a lot of talk about tax toxic masculinity in it mm. and he falls in love with um a dancer that's there that's also kind of sort of coming out of the the closet and it's 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 there's the romance and it's there but it's more about this young man trying to determine what his place is in society and what what his role is going to be in the future and if he wants to to be part of this culture of very conservative very toxic dance company and it's i thought it was so good the main character the main actor his name is levin gilbakiani and this is like his first role he's a dancer in real life he just has such a naturalistic performance to this that just really pulled me in and he kind of gives timothy chalamet a run for that kind of floppy headed oh my god like adorableness (laughs) (laughs) but um it's it's really really good i think it's out in in theaters limited right now um so I'm, i'm hoping it'll be out streaming and whatnot eventually but definitely i would keep it on your radar if if you're a fan of these kind of coming of age tales. That, Amazing. I heard that that movie, I heard that movie getting kind of unfairly compared to other queer movies and, and uh, kind of getting lambasted because, you know, someone was comparing it, I think to like um, BMP, which is just, yeah. or BPM, sorry. And BPM is like a very different kind of film. And <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know right. why it was being compared, but I would love to check out that movie. I also know that like this became a cultural moment in Georgia um, because like they actually it, what started it is the 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 director and writer Levin Akin. He in 2013 witnessed this like pride rally that became like a hate crime where thousands of like Orthodox um, religious people, the, the, the Georgian Orthodox Church were like riling up a crowd of thousands of people and they descended on this hundred person like protest for against homophobia and like people got hurt really bad people went to jail like it was this horrible thing 
when they screened this movie for the first time, they ended up having to walk through what they called um, shame, um, like uh, chambers where people were basically on all sides of them, yelling at them as they were trying to go screen this film. Good so like Lord. it became this big moment over in Georgia. Um, and it's just, I don't know. It's, it really, it really hit me hard when I, when I saw this and like, again, I, I don't think it's necessarily a romance. There is a romance to it, but it is more about the character coming, coming of age. And I, I can kind of see what people were talking, like compare it. I think it's unfavorable to compare it to like BPM and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Cause it's more a very personal story of this one man in Georgia, but like, yeah, it's just a shame that like niche th films get put against each other. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. like, oh this one's got gays. Wanna... This one's got women. Cool. Yep. Same thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> same exact, same exact movie as this other one. Right. It's like when, when call me by your name came out and, uh, and God's own country, everyone was trying to compare the two. And I'm like, can't they both be good for different reasons? Like yeah. there can only we, like... be one gay movie, Terry. I know. Only one I know. gay movie. Well, oh, that's the thing so that true. kind of reinforces the way that studios think about things too, that there can only be right. one gay. And so when audiences do that and critics do that, I'm just like, Oh no. <laughs> don't 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 contribute don't contribute mm -hmm. uh but those are the two that i saw what about you mary beth so um i watched mulholland drive today for the first time and that was a wild experience and i loved it i don't know what i was expecting but it wasn't that in a good way in a way that only david lynch can provide me <laughs> My my sweet, sweet father. I love him so much. But I don't know. I hadn't seen it. And then I, I thought today while lying on the couch sick was a good time to watch it. And I was like, I totally get it. And I don't think I did. I just I was just like, yeah, definitely. Like my fever adult brain totally understands every narrative beat of this movie. And then when it ended, I was like, I don't think I know what happened. But I loved every minute of it because only David Lynch can make me invested in a film that has like six different storylines in it and somehow they all come together, but not really. So that was awesome. And also April, I saw you tweeted about this. Um, I'm watching Avenue five too. Mm. And Avenue five is a comedy on HBO. It's like a comedy. It's a comedy in space that I think is absolutely hilarious. It's like very dry humor and it's, um, we watch it. My roommate, my boyfriend and I watch it whenever it comes on and it's so fucking funny. It's like, it's a spaceship that's like, it's like a cruise ship in space and they get knocked out of their orbit and they end up like having, they're trapped on the ship altogether. And it's about like the politics of the spaceship and also everyone's a total moron and doesn't know what they're doing. And it is so funny. I think April, you compared it to the terror. Yeah. <laughs> And oh, it's, wow. a it's like not actually because it's a comedy, but like what a hilarious comparison because like if Hugh Laurie is in it as one of the main characters, um, Josh Gad is in it, Who else? like a bunch of people from The Office are in it. So it's like, it's just so funny and it's so like uncomfortable, I guess is a good way to put it, but I'm really enjoying it. So oh, yeah. yeah, it's an, and a 30 minute episodes too. So it's like one of those like low commitment shows, but I'm having a great time with it. <laughs> um, April, what have you been watching? Um, okay, I have been watching the things that are leaving the Criterion channel. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Um, 
Because that's like the easiest way to get me interested is like a cat, you know, then you drag like the, the, <laughs> the toy behind the couch is just like, no, no, don't leave. And then yeah. I get interested. Um, so uh, I've been watching uh, a lot of Lena Wertmuller. Um, oh. Because I am, un- I was under uh, uh, educated on her, even though I knew that she had actually broken so many barriers as a woman filmmaker so uh i watched some of her films and seven beauties is amazing um i watched one called summer night that i don't want to talk about because i really want to remake it (laughs) 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 but i'm really in love with it and um she has pretty much you you turn on any movie that she had from criterion or rented or or you know, find it however you can. And it is just so phenomenal. She, she is making movies that are very structurally interesting in the same way that, uh, Robert Altman was doing at the time. Um, certain movies she has, um, are very kind of textured and layered with sound and, um, they rove and they've got, you know, many different characters, who have their own kind of internal lives going on. And it's, it's, it's very much of its time of that, like um, mid seventies to early eighties time period when she was kind of having her largest output. And, uh, but they're so darkly funny. Everything is so funny. And she has such a a wicked sense of um, uh, classism and humor that um, it's, it's, uh, so wonderful. I, I can't believe it's taken me this long to become a super fan of hers. Um, so I've definitely been watching that. And then also, um, uh, uh, Dujan Makaveev's, um, Montenegro. I finally bought and, um, I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, he is, uh, RIP. He died, uh, last year. He was such a sickly funny man um, from the Czech Republic or Yugoslavia. I can't remember which one, Um, but he was uh, making movies that just you have no idea what's going to happen next. But they're so funny and so dark. And I cannot recommend Montenegro enough because it's about, um, it stars Susan Anspa, an American actress, blonde woman, um, who is living in uh, Sweden with her husband who is Swedish. And she starts kind of losing her mind and becomes a little bit bored. Her husband's cheating on her and her kids are kind of assholes. And in a weird kind of slapstick thing, she ends up going to the airport and accidentally going home with this band of like um, gypsies and and living at a strip club called Zanzibar. (laughs) And it's so weird. Um, But I highly recommend searching out any of those movies. That sounds amazing and weird and exactly what I'm looking for. I'm looking at it on Letterboxd right now, and I want to watch all of his movies now. They're so weird. Everything is so weird. I I love that. I just want to be surprised. I don't want to see the same thing over and over again. And Yeah. Yeah. And these people were figuring out structure in a very different way a long time ago, so so cool that's awesome well so now that we've talked about what we've been watching do we want to talk about the movie you've brought this week april what are we talking about oh my god we're talking about cujo nothing that lives in the imagination 
is more frightening than the terror that lives in Castle Rock, Maine. Cujo? Cujo? Can he get us in here? Can he eat his way in here? From the novel by Stephen King comes a startling vision of fear. Now there's a new name for terror. Cujo. Ah. Cujo! So, Cujo. In this tale of a killer canine, man's best friend turns into his worst enemy. When sweet St. Bernard Cujo is bitten by a bat, he starts behaving oddly and becomes very aggressive, a.k.a. he has rabies. <laughs> Meanwhile, domestic bliss is at stake when stay-at-home mom Dana, played by Dee Wallace, finds love in another man. In the midst of marital drama, Donna gets caught in Cujo's crosshairs on a fateful errand with her son, Tad. Stuck in their tiny car, Donna and Tad have a frightening showdown with the crazed canine. So, how old were you when you saw this, April? Oh my god, um, either three or four. I was very Oh my young. god, holy shit! Oh no! Um, yeah, it, it was, I mean, we watched everything when I was too young, but I, this one, <laughs> this one stuck out to me in terms of being afraid for the rest of my entire life and not feeling like I could ever watch it again. And I did watch it again for this podcast, so... <laughs> wow so three or four gosh what what um scenes kind of stuck out to you at that early age that like that lingered in your head oh because that's insane there there was one um one where danny pintoro playing i can't remember what the child's name is the character Tad, Tad. yeah the little Tad. kid um he so uh at some point in time he starts kind of hyperventilating and, oh my god and he yes. can't breathe and when I was a kid, it felt so realistic. And, and, you know, D Wallace is the mother is just like being like, you have to breathe. You cannot do this to me. You have to breathe. And as a kid, I was like, wow, this is really scary. I can't handle this. And then as an adult, I was like, wow, this is really scary. I can't handle this. (laughs) I was, I was correct as a child that this is still a scary movie. (laughs) Yes. Um, I, so I, I was watching, um, a behind the scenes documentary on this and the i saw that the kid or the guy that the actor that played tad danny pintaro he actually suffered from uh, like seizures at his early age so like when they were like hey um do you know what a seizure is he's like i think i can do it and that scene he's like six when he did this and he couldn't read but he is probably one of the best child actors i've i have seen in a horror film he his role right? was terrifying yes absolutely and when i told my husband i was just like you realize that that's danny pintaro from who's the boss that's jonathan he was just like no and i'm like that's jonathan <laughs> oh shit really yeah <laughs> i didn't realize that um because that's why i started watching who's the boss was because my, my grandparents were like oh it's the kid from cujo and i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I feel like that guy should have had a much longer career, honestly. Like, he's very good. Maybe he didn't want to be acting as much. I don't know what happened with him later on in life, but... I think the the charisma between him and Dee Wallace, their performances together, just... It's really it's really terrifying to watch as an, as an adult. I, I thought this movie was really scary. Oh, yeah. It's horrifying. Like, I had never seen this movie until, like, this week. And, oh, my God, it's 
it's awful. Like the especially with his like Danny Pintara's performance, like his screaming and crying. I'm like, this is like this is. Ter- I do not have children, but I'm like, if I was a mom watching this, I'd be like, turn this fucking movie off right now. Like it's heartbreaking. It's, it's terrifying. And I think that like it was a simple story told mm-hmm. very well, and um, I, I think that's its its strong suit is it's really relying yeah. on these performances from these actors in this because a lot of it is kind of locked room within that car yeah for a long time or in that yard and what they were able to do with that is really really just kind of visually intelligent and and i i really appreciated it but this is truly a scary and also as an adult i felt bad for cujo then you know, right, because I, I, like as a child, it's just like, oh, evil bad dog. But then as an adult, I'm like, oh, this poor dog was just like not taken care of, and it's just reacting, and it can't, it can't help but kill because it's rabid and yeah, so scary. And I, I work at an animal shelter, like as my day job, and I was like, this is the perfect movie to tell you to vaccinate your pets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also like. It's so funny too because we get dogs into my to where I work that are named Cujo, and now that I've seen the movie, I'm like, guys, why would you name your dog Cujo? It's such a terrible <laughs> name, and it just makes me like it made me laugh before, but now it makes me kind of like cringe a little bit. It's like, oh no, those poor dogs. <laughs> and it's so funny. It will to me like the Saint Bernard. I think I saw this on Letterbox too. Like Saint Bernards are such sweet dogs, and the fact that they made like a, a such a big sweet dog known for saving people in the snow, so scary and goopy and bloody and gross amazing phenomenal like he's so goopy he's just disgusting just like disgusting slathered with like sun-baked mayonnaise and ketchup and mustard (laughs) you know Oh. Yeah, I saw I saw in like the uh, in the in the behind the scenes documentary that I was watching that they had they it was like whipped egg whites and they had oh to like God. they had to like keep applying it to him because and and like quickly get a get a shot in because he he would start licking it off of his face before he <laughs> he could do anything and to to kind of piggyback off what you said about them being such sweet dogs they actually tied their tails down because they were wagging the entire time oh, they were doing this babies. <laughs> <laughs> They're having such a good time. They were. <laughs> I'm just here to have fun. <laughs> and they didn't the uh the animal trainer didn't want to use St. Bernard's. He's like they don't they're not trained you can't train saint bernards to do this kind of stuff and they're like can we use like a doberman pincher i got trained doberman pinchers but like no it has to be a saint bernard and that dog is freaking huge they're absolutely ginormous animals and like they drool so much and they're just damp creatures mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was it a saint bernard in the book too i, I haven't yeah. read the book so i'm not as familiar yes it was okay have have you read it, April? Uh, no, I never read that one. I'm fairly slim on the books that I've read of King. I think I read, okay. you know, like I read The Dead Zone and um, It growing up, but I can't remember okay. which other ones I actually took. So when when you had, when I messaged you and we were talking, April, and um, you suggested this movie, and I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen this movie. It turns out I have. I don't oh. know if I've like blocked it in from my mind because um I I have a severe fear of dogs. I always oh, have. Oh really? I didn't know that. Um, I've been bitten twice by him oh very viciously. Ugh. One when it was going for my throat and my oh, arm was in the way, and oh, I have shit, scars. Terry. I have scars in my arm where it bit me. And when I was younger, a Doberman Pinscher jumped on my back when I was in a friend's yard and bit me. Like I I 
I'm very traumatized with dogs and I've gotten better as I've gotten older, but I don't know if, if I like blocked this movie out, but I, I could remember, I remembered scenes of it and it was when I was watching it this time that I realized that I had seen it because when I was, when I was growing up, I read a lot of Stephen King books and I read most of them before I saw the movie. This is one of the rare exceptions and I had this vivid memory when I was watching this because in the book, sorry guys, spoilers for a 40 year old book, (laughs) but the kid dies. No shit. Yes. Tad dies in the, in the book. Whoa. The the book is very nihilistic. And I remember because I'd seen the movie first where the kid lives and I got to that part in the book and I threw the book across the, (laughs) across the room and I was so pissed and I didn't, I didn't read it again for like three or four weeks because I was so betrayed that they would, after all of this, the kid would die and he didn't die from the dog. He died from dehydration. He died from this, you know, being in the car and, and kind of sun heat stroke and all that. And I remember feeling so betrayed by that novel. (laughs) Oh, holy shit. Um, I mean, it's brutal already in the movie. I can't imagine like if the son died, I would be just absolutely heartbroken. And that, and that's exactly how it, it, it hit me when, when I was a kid, because like, I mean, the, the movie is, is terrifying. And a lot of the stuff that happens in the movie happened in the book. But like, one of the things that I think they kind of stripped out from the the movie is they, they made it more lean by just focusing mostly on um, Donna and, and Vic and, and Tad, whereas the book kind of sets up almost this like domino effect of all these little things that went wrong. And it was, mm. it's almost like deterministic and like fate that this was going to happen. Oh, like interesting. It, so much kind of was set up where it's like if, if, if they hadn't won the lottery or if they hadn't done this or if, um, you know, the cereal hadn't turned people's, had made people sick or if this didn't happen or if that didn't happen, all of these events kind of came together to make such a depressing ending. Wow. And that's something that I don't think the movie necessarily taps into, but I think it's probably for the best. I mean, I feel, yeah, it's it's already fatalistic in a in a manner of just like, and then this happens, and then this happens, and everything's leading to this. And I like that the movie cuts out on a freeze frame where you actually don't know if those two survive because they're both right. pretty yeah. battered. You're not sure if they're actually going to live. She's going to get those rabies shots. Yeah, she does. <laughs> Well, and something I was talking to Terry about before we were recording, but I wanted to talk about more was I liked this movie a lot, but something that really gave me pause was the way, like, the gender representation in this film. Because at first I was thinking, okay, Cujo is killing bad men. Hell yeah, Cujo. Because he gets the, what are they, Comer? Is that their last name? Uh, uh. camper camper um so yeah so there's the 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 poorer family that repair the cars and the 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 the, like the patriarch of the family and his friend are both mauled by cujo and i was thinking okay this is this is going to be very interesting in terms of like the bad men are going to get attacked but then all of a sudden it's donna trapped in a car being attacked and i kind of had this reading that she's getting almost attacked for disturbing the order of things. Like she, 
cheated on her husband and she kind of ruined the the domestic ideal and she is getting punished. And maybe that's me reading too much into it, but I had a lot of feelings about that as I was watching. And I was just curious if you, either of you had like a reading like that or had any thoughts about that? I I felt like watching it now, I can see what you're talking about, but at the same time, I think that the movie actually did a decent job of portraying the husband as like being pretty distant and yeah. focused on his job and not um, uh, available to her. And mm-hmm. so to me, it felt like it was giving her enough um, leeway to be a person who made mistakes and not be evil. Um, and yeah. Okay. So I think, I think that kind of saved it for me. And, okay. and also it, it made her um, just the nature of her reacting during that attack is just, it made her vulnerable and sympathetic in a way that was much more complex to me. Yeah. Because it was also partly like the husband left on this business trip and isn't taking the time to repair his marriage. And this is why his family is stuck in this fucking predicament. He like makes her, her, makes her go and get the car fixed while he's going out and fixing a dumb serial ad campaign, which is also hilarious. <laughs> nothing wrong here. <laughs> right. I know. That was, over and over again. Nothing wrong here. Nothing wrong here. Parts of the book was, um, it, it, and I don't think they really touched on it too much in the movie, but like what it was doing, it was making people's insides red. And so it looked like they were like shitting out their stomachs. Oh, Jesus. And the kids would go use the restroom. And so like, <laughs> that's kind of how the whole thing like started. Cause like the, one of the first, uh, things that you would get introduced in the book is this girl in Iowa that's like, shitting red and all of a sudden it's because of the cereal and and the doctor nothing wrong here you know mm-hmm. <laughs> wow well and april i see i see that actually that makes a lot of sense because i also feel like this is like a rare example of a movie like from the 80s that lets a woman be messy and like a mother be messy a little bit yeah. like she and it's not and she's not portrayed really as necessarily the bad guy and she is the narrative like a narrative focus she's not like a side character to the husband but more it is a movie about her and she's allowed to like make a mistake and have this affair but then also like feel remorseful and then also be like a badass woman and also really confused and scared and it is an example of like a female character that's allowed to be not one thing or the other which i did appreciate and d wallace kills it like she's amazing in this movie you guys and also um d wallace was married to the actor who plays her husband um christopher stone yeah christopher stone and her were in multiple movies together and in fact they were happily married for a long time until he suddenly died from a heart attack in like oh no Mm. god i can't remember if it was 85 or 95 i think it was 85 Wow. Um, Damn. And so, yeah, they they were acting together quite a bit. And I thought their scenes together were, were quite lovely. But, um, yeah, so they were actually married. And, and I think that every performance in, in this film is absolutely wonderful. But Dee Wallace just never gets enough credit. Never. She's a, she doesn't. She doesn't. Like, this movie, like, I mean, the, the sheer physicality of just, like, her screaming and... I mean, I feel like, especially in the car, like she has not a lot, a lot of space to to move, but the way she's able to have that really intense physicality is so impressive. Yeah. And 
oh man one of one of my favorite parts of of the movie actually is when tad is like i want my daddy get me my daddy and she's you know she's spent the last however many days in this movie saving this kid and he's calling for his daddy and she's like i'll get you your daddy like it's like this <laughs> this like frustrated anger of like really i'm kid i'm trying to save you mm-hmm. and and you're calling for your dad Okay. Okay. Oh my god. Oh my god. Alright, I'll get your daddy. And there's like so much like rage behind that that um I I thought felt very very realistic for that kind of situation and she just nails nails that part yeah she that i also clocked that moment and was just like oh shit like (laughs) this is very i'll get you your fucking daddy (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) so another scene that i wanted to talk about that's like very it's not even like with the dog it's this scene where tad is like turning off the light in his room and running towards his bed Yes. Like that felt so that whole sequence was so was shot so like interestingly and beautifully and also was so relatable to like how I used to do it as a kid, like kind of prepping to turn off the light and sprint to bed. Yes. Like what an amazing shot that had literally nothing to do with the dog, but sets up this tension and this fear like childhood fear so well. And then the closet door oh it's like it's like they took a like image out of every child's nightmare and just put it perfectly on screen Mm -hmm. and absolutely amazing like at the very beginning it sets this such an intense tone for the rest of the movie yeah i i think i i fell in love with this movie despite the fact that it made me feel so terrible and so tense but i'm not scared by movies generally it's one of the reasons why i can watch so many horror movies and just kind of feel <laughs> like oh wow that was interesting or i really like that shot <laughs> but this one had me from beginning to end it was yeah this is a perfect film <laughs> and this is the first time you've rewatched it since you were a kid right yeah i could not revisit it whatsoever <laughs> there's no way <laughs> So one of my favorite moments of this movie, and I, this it startled the shit out of me, was um, the way it used um, a kind of a fake out killer POV when the dog is is first when the first dog attack happens on the car, because like it the camera is like low and the doors open and she's like trying to get Tad out of his buckle and it's not working and the camera sort of like creeps up on the car and you're trained to think that that's the dog because of the way that like it's it's set and it's that kind of like that kind of killer pov thing mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it's not him because he's jumping up on the window on the other side and i like i seriously jumped out of my chair at that part it like really got me yes it, oh god absolutely there's um the way that he he messed with the expectations and that film yes. where it was good uh, i realized i misspoke earlier i think i said that christopher stone played the husband but she, he played the the lover so that's what i was saying oh, okay the, those, okay. those scenes together i really i thought they were really beautiful i thought it was so them playing off together you could kind of see that between the two of them that there was like a relationship there. Yeah, they were going for it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, but then there was also that really awful moment in the kitchen where he's like just like trying to yank her panties off, and she's like, "Please don't, my kid is upstairs." Yeah. And he's just like, "Just kidding, we're gonna do it anyway." And it's just like this. Po- I mean, this poor woman just like cannot catch a break from any of the men in her life. Like she is just getting 
shit on from all sides. It's just like... I, I love the complexity of this movie. And like I said, it's such a simple story. It's it's not yeah. that much there, right. you know? But it is so complex. Like, the more I think about it, the more it's like... You know, you hear about Cujo and everyone knows the name Cujo. It's like, oh yeah, it's a killer dog. But you see the movie and you're like, this is more than just a killer dog. Like, there's so much more happening and there's so much more story to it like it is a simple story but there's so much more humanity to it Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah and the actual like cujo part doesn't even start until about like 40 minutes into the movie or so Mm -hmm. you know it's like 40 or 50 minutes in when when cujo like when they're stuck out there there's so much setup going in it and the thing that like I, i really picked up on this time that i really enjoyed was this kind of like mix of real fear versus imaginary fear because you know donna is afraid of growing old and useless and bored in this town vic is feared of like has these financial fears and tad has all these fears of the thing in the closet and i think he's picking up on some of like the the fears that his parents have but ultimately it's like this real fear that kind of puts everything into perspective because like it's it's not until the dog gets introduced that like, it's like, Oh shit. No, this is the thing to really be afraid about, you know? Yeah. Oh man. I love thinking about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Remake it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's like such a perfect movie. Oh my God. I know. And I feel like this is like, this movie does not get the credit it deserves. I don't think it's like, I feel like it's almost like a punchline sometimes like Cujo, but mm-hmm. it really should get more credit for being a really good horror movie and a really good, like tight story that talks about like humanity and also a pretty intense monster in scare quotes. Cause like, it's nothing supernatural either. It's just, it's rabies. Like if you think about it really, like, I don't think I, I'm not like an expert in rabies, so I don't know if this could actually happen, but like, it's not necessarily like a far-fetched or supernatural plot. Like, it's just a really fucked up dog, mm-hmm. which is even scarier. We, we had talked um, a little bit, Mary Beth and I, before we started recording that like, so Stephen King has no recollection of writing this story. <laughs> um, was it in the was... alcoholism phase or? Yeah, yeah, he was, he was downing, uh, like, um, I think he said in an interview that he was, he was downing a 16 uh, pack a day of beer oh my god and like i it, in a lot of stephen king's work you can kind of see i i feel like he kind of almost casts himself as like the villain in a lot of the stories because mm-hmm. like i i see i see this dog and the way he talks about the dog in the book he he writes a couple things from the dog's perspective and it's almost as if like the dog is seeing through like a, a, a haze of like alcoholism or or whatever the case may be it's like it's almost portrayed that way and the footnote on the book reminds people that that Cujo was um wanted to be a good dog and bad things happen yeah and it kind of like it kind of reminds me of like maybe how he was seeing himself in some ways of like you know he's trying to do the best he can but bad things happen and i i almost feel like it's it's another one of those stories it's kind of about his alcoholism even when he might not consciously know it yeah well i mean he consciously didn't know he wrote it so that makes sense like what the heck that's gotta be wild to write so many books and be like i don't fucking remember writing this but i guess like people really liked it (laughs) jesus (laughs) that's ridiculous That's that's awful well, and then it's also like his probably his darkest work, to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah, for sure. I feel like we didn't even bring up the fact that there's like a whole other separate family drama with the family that owns Cujo. Wait, yes, like the like yeah. the like the 
poor fam, like the poor, I guess there's like the kind of, there's obviously the wealth dynamics here with like the wealthy mm-hmm. family who moved there from New York City to like the poor family who's probably lived there for a while and that like entire relationship dynamic. And I, I, I know that in the book from reading about it, that there's, they talk more about that family, right, Terry? There's more of like yes. us even split between the two of them. Yes. Okay. Um, because in fact, um, so Joe Camber, the, the, the patriarch is um, abusive and his wife, um, Charity, wants to to take their son, Brett, away from the family because she starts seeing that the kid is acting in the same way as the dad. And she's terrified of, of it becoming like the cycle of, of, you know, abuse pretty much. And so when she wins the lottery, she basically tricks her husband into letting her go be with her sister and she has no plans of coming back. Oh, yeah, because she puts, I mean, even in the movie, you can tell it because she puts a photo album in her back right and they they just sort of like hint at it in that because like i I remember especially in the movie the thing that kind of brought me back to the book was when when brett is like we should tell dad about cujo and she's like no no because she doesn't want any reason to have them be forced to stay she wants to get out yeah that that whole family dynamic thing is just it i I think that's it's such an interesting foil between the two because you have like the one you have in both cases the the wife for different reasons, wanting to kind of be a part of the family, away from the family, you know, yeah. with, with, with Donitz, the, the, the affair kind of thing. And with, um, charity, it's, it's the, the abuse and not wanting to see her son. Yeah. I, 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 again, that texture, I think adds a lot to the story that could have just been the dog is evil. Um, yeah. Another thing I wanted to bring up was the fact that <laughs> the first guy who's killed by Cujo is played by uh, the actor Mills Watson. And um, Mills Watson is also in my favorite episode of Murder, She Wrote. One of my favorites. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. He's a, you know, a perennial, uh, wonderful character actor. Uh, who? Yeah, I was going to say he looks like a character actor. I wasn't sure what he'd been in before, but... My favorite is him just like squatting on the porch screaming... Come on! Come on! I don't give a shit. Hear me? I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Like, I was just like, what? But also amazing. Like, just a very intensely strange moment <laughs> between mm-hmm. him and the dog. Yep. I yeah. There's like a a kind of like um, surrender of control in that moment where you're just like, yeah. well, fuck you too, dog. <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially because, like, there's that one scene where the two of them um, are talk like, the two guys are talking about how they're going to take the lottery money and go on, like, a titty trip to Boston and, like, take the money and just, like, get hookers and drink a lot and, like, typical gross dude stuff. And he, so he says something about um, Cujo, like, never doing anything, like, never hurting a fly. Like, Cujo won't do anything. Mm-hmm. And then, like, not much later, the dog is, like, ripping his throat out. Nothing wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, is... wow! I'm like so glad that I got to watch this movie finally because it really is so complex and great. Like as compared to what it like the cultural zeitgeist and conversation around it mm-hmm. hints at. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Terry, do we? Wow. <laughs> but do we have any any last things we want to talk about? I'm good. Did you have anything else, April? No, I feel like we covered a lot of things. We did. Yeah. Cool. All right. Wow. Um, so thank you so much, April, for joining us to talk about Cujo. Uh, where can our listeners find you? And do you have anything coming up you'd like to share? Um, I am on Twitter 
too much so they can always find me on twitter <laughs> um and uh i do have some things coming up but i can't share anything yet <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's the epidemic of this business that you can't share news until right it's either official or it's announced for someone else by someone else so yeah <laughs> and what's your twitter handle in case people don't know uh it's a wolfful like you have a handful of something but instead it's a wolfful but it's um it's complicated. I don't know. I wasn't intending to spend a lot of time on Twitter when I created the account, if you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll make sure to, and we'll link your handle in the show notes too. Okay. And um, the the day after this comes out, I believe Black Christmas will be out digitally. It comes out the third, I think, right of March. Yeah, yeah. You can you can rent the Blu-ray or the the digital copy. I think um, sometime Do in it. March. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Um. <laughs> So you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you guys. What was your experience with Cujo? Send us an, an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com and we might feature you in an upcoming episode. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, follow and tag us on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork, and thank you to Sean Keller for our amazing intro music. Thank you to everyone for listening, and stay creepy. And until next time... ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>